Friends, we're going to look in our Bibles at Luke chapter 2. Could there be a more familiar passage to us about the birth of Jesus himself, these profound and powerful words? So we're going to study the first 20 verses, and my wife actually has this passage memorized. She says it with her family every year, and I begged her to come and do a recitation for us, and she said, absolutely not. So you're stuck with me. I'm just going to read the thing to us. But listen to these familiar words, and I hope in a new way. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see the thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger. And when they saw it, they made it known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart, and the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. Let's pray together. Father, let us ponder too. Let us treasure, let us glorify you and your name for this so great a salvation. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, we spent a month professing that Athanasian creed. That's a mouthful. There's probably not a denser paragraph of theology that you could find or say corporately with a group of people. And we've been saying week after week, now this is the true faith that we believe and confess that our Lord Jesus Christ, God's Son, is both God and man equally. Jesus must be, for our salvation, fully God and fully man. He must be fully man if he is going to absorb God's wrath on sinful man. He cannot stand as a substitute for man unless he has been made fully a man and only then can he absorb God's wrath for sin in man. He must be a man, but he must also be fully God to fully satisfy God's wrath on sinful man because if he wasn't divine and he wasn't infinite then he could only substitute for one 
He must be fully God and fully man. Now, there's a bunch of places in our Bible, if I was arguing with a Jehovah Witness on my front stoop, that I would go to to show Jesus is clearly being described fully God, fully man. One of those places, it's John chapter 1, which Noah read for us this morning. But another unique passage for that is actually our passage this morning because it presents that to us, but it presents it in a most poetic way. The passage screams of Jesus' divinity even while it marvels over his humanity. Now, I see two words in our passage that are repeated three times each, and those words kind of frame the idea of Jesus as God and Jesus as man. The word glory appears in our passage three times. It's repeated three times. You got the glory of the Lord. You have the angels glorifying God. You have the shepherds glorifying God. The angels and glory attend Jesus' birth. He's divine. But then you have another word that's repeated three times in our passage, and that's the word manger. You heard that again and again. Jesus is born in a manger. The shepherds are told to go look for a manger. The shepherds come find Jesus in a manger. Jesus is humbled in his humanity. Glory and manger, divinity and humanity. Let's celebrate both of these in Jesus this morning. And we're going to start with glory. We're going to start with the divinity of Jesus as we find it in our passage. Now, there's a little flex that happens in the beginning of our passage that's easy to miss if we don't know our Roman history and we're not thinking about what's happening at this time. But basically, Caesar in Rome is telling Jews in Israel where to go to get on the tax roll to feed the beast that is the Roman Empire. In a modern telling, that would be like kicking off this story by saying, in those days a decree went out from Vladimir Putin that all Ukrainians should be registered. That's offensive. Any red-blooded Israelite would bristle at Luke chapter 2 verse 1, just like any red-blooded American would bristle at taxation without representation. This is a a flex of the Roman Empire to kind of remind us who's in charge right now. And actually, this heavy-handedness of the Roman Empire that's being expressed on Israel right now, this taxation, this registration, this is a watershed event. This is going to, right here, set Rome and Israel on a collision course. There will be a rebellion and it will be crushed after Jesus' time. And in fact, this is happening all in the background of Jesus' life. One of Jesus' disciples was Simon the Zealot. By zealot, we don't mean that he was a, a just zealous, passionate guy. We mean he was part of a terrorist organization, as the Romans would have described him. He was out with his group to overthrow Roman rule by any means necessary. Now, even though all that is brewing under the surface, I can promise you Caesar Augustus wouldn't have given a rip about Simon or the zealots or Jesus' birthday. He's too big for any of those things. 
born Gaius Octavius, this guy was a winner. I mean, Augustus put on his pants one leg at a time like the rest of us, but when he did, he remade the world as we know it. What you know of the Roman Empire came a lot through this guy and what he did. He was the guy that punished Julius Caesar's assassins. He's the guy that defeats Mark Antony and Cleopatra. He's the guy that founds the Roman Empire. He becomes her first emperor. He expands the empire to Africa and the Middle East and Spain. He's the one that establishes Pax Romana, peace throughout the realm, and he is going to be given the title Augustus by the Senate, which means majestic. He is the majestic Caesar, king among kings, and a prince who brings peace. He's a big deal. But as great as Caesar Augustus was, or as great as any human authority or power is or was, he is but a foil, a backdrop, a pawn, a talking head for the divine King Jesus. Now Caesar is in his palace and he's bossing the whole world around to, to show up in the right place and get registered and get on the tax roll and he's probably thinking of himself as hot stuff even as he's ordering people around in this passage. But Proverbs 21.1 says, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hands of the Lord and he turns it wherever he wills. And it turns out Caesar is just doing God's bidding. God wants to get this couple from Nazareth up north, 75 miles down to Bethlehem, the city where King David was born in the line of David. And so he snaps his fingers and says, Caesar, come here. I need you for a minute. I need you to do a chore for me and rearrange the world so that I can get this couple in Bethlehem ready to be registered so that the prophecy will be fulfilled. He comes from the city of David. And that's just the beginning of our passage. Jesus is greater than Caesar Augustus in every way. Caesar was known for his realm that his authority extended all around the Mediterranean. But verse 14 says that Jesus' realm is going to touch the earth. The glory of Jesus will cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. People from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation will worship King Jesus. Caesar was known for his power. He's backed by the Senate and he's backed by a standing army. He could make people tremble. But verse 9, Jesus' power is pronounced by angels, divine beings that have strength to bring down world superpowers like Egypt and Assyria, of which Jesus says at his arrest, if I wanted to stand and fight, I could call down 12 legions, 60,000 angels to do my bidding. He comes in power. Caesar was known for his title, Caesar. Augustus, the majestic emperor, but Jesus' title shines in verse 11. He is the savior 
who is Christ the Lord. He is the bringer of salvation. He is God's chosen Messiah. And he is the Lord God of Israel and earth. Caesar was known for his peace. He was the one that created Pax Romana. He, he brought relative safety. There was little war inside the emperor as long as he ruled. But Jesus brings true peace. That word peace translated that he will bring to earth, that's not the absence of conflict. That's shalom peace. Jesus is the one that begins to put the world back together as it should be reconciling it to himself. He brings true and total and abiding peace. Some of y'all are about to sit down to a Christmas dinner table tomorrow with your dysfunctional family. And you're thinking, man, I could use some Pax Romana just as long as nobody throws a punch or brings up the election, like we're gonna be good. And Jesus is saying, I'm able to bring true, abiding, shalom, peace, restoring relationships, restoring the world. Lastly, Caesar died. He died. AD 14, he was dead. He had this incredible house, but somebody tore it down and built the next emperor's house on top of where his house used to be. And, and today, nobody worships Caesar. Nobody gathers on a Sunday morning to talk about Caesar. In fact, the only way a lot of us know who Caesar Augustus is, is because he shows up in Luke 2 in the preface of Jesus' birth. But Jesus cannot die. In his humanity, he dies, but death can't hold him even then. He resurrects to live fully God, fully man, forever and ever and ever. Christian, look upon your Jesus in his glory, in his majesty, in his divinity. Worship him, fear him, exalt him. Celebrate him, read about him, sing to him, pray to him, tell your awkward uncle about him, worship the Lord in his divinity, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, of the increase of his government and his peace, there will be no end. Worship him in his divinity. But there's another point here. There is the humanity of Jesus, as rich and full and glorious as the announcement of God the Son is, I think the passage is actually trying its best to, to press us in the other direction, the humility and the humanity of Jesus. That's, that's what we're meant to see even as his divinity is bursting at the seams in Luke chapter 2. Now, every year around this time, our family listens to the best Christmas pageant ever. Anybody ever read that book, heard that book? Best Christmas pageant ever. If you haven't, cancel your afternoon plans, pick up this book and read it. Um, it's great because in it, it's the story of this like small, uptight church that does this tired out Christmas play every single year. Everybody's bored with it. Everybody knows who's gonna get what part. And they kind of go through the motions until one year 
an unchurched family shows up. Dun, dun, dun. They come for the donuts and they stay to volunteer for all the major parts in the play. And this is how the author describes them. The Herdmans were absolutely the worst kids in the history of the world. They lied and stole and smoked cigars, even the girls, and talked dirty and hit little kids and cussed their teachers. I mean, this is like a horror show about to happen. But of course, what happens when you have people that have never heard this story before, and it's completely unbelievable to imagine, by their questions and their inappropriate comments, All of a sudden, everybody, including the church, fully sees this in a brand new light. What becomes an all too familiar scene is earthy, gritty, dirty, noisy. How could this be? Lord, give us fresh eyes to see this miracle. This is how God designs to show his love and tenderness. This is how he designs to introduce God the Son, the true Caesar of all, in all humility and humanity. Now Mary and Joseph, they make the three or four day journey south. They get all the way down to Joseph's hometown, Bethlehem, where Jesus is going to be born. And there's a bunch of debate about what this actually looks like. I read way too many articles this week going back and forth of of how we're going to interpret the scene. But but here's a few things that we are pretty sure of that often get misinterpreted. Inn does not mean motel and manger does not mean barn. Now, we've thought about this and seen so many pictures and seen so many cartoons. It's It's hard to think about this any other way. But truly... When Joseph comes to Bethlehem, this is a very small town and there probably aren't any or very few freestanding hotels or motels. That just wasn't a big thing back then and definitely not in a small town. Plus, Joseph is coming down to his hometown, so his family is going to be there and it would be a great shame to the family if they didn't have a place for him to stay. So what probably happened is Joseph is coming to town with everyone else And Joseph kind of gets bumped in priority. He's not the guest of honor and he gets bumped all the way down to probably where he stayed was in the family room. Like there's no actual room for you. There's no guest room for you. So you get bumped to the family room. You're going to be sleeping there. Kind of like when you go visit your brother, but your sister is coming and she's way more special and makes more money and everybody loves her more. And so she gets the guest room with the private shower and you get the blow up mattress in the basement, right? I'm not complaining. That's just, that's just how it goes. So <laughs> the priority is bumped and now all of a sudden this couple is in the family room, but a family room in Bethlehem would be this. You don't have a separate barn where you keep the animals. You keep the animals in your house at night. They've got their own room and that's connected to the living room. And so you have where the animals are staying and then you have the main family room and you probably have this low wall between the two, which is where the feeding trough or the manger is. So truly they are in this scene where they're kind of in this main space, kind of a very low area. And they are placed here right next to where the animals are going to be for the night. And all of this presents this most humble birth scene. I mean, in modern terms, Mary and Joseph come to nowhere, Bamberg County, 
to a blow-up mattress in the basement to birth King Jesus and place him in a food bowl. And there's a time that the only people that know about this are the couple and the extended family and a few folks working food and bev on the late shift. This is incredible. What a marvel. What humility. What humanity. Surely the Lord is showing us a great and awesome wonder that the King of Kings, greater than Caesar Augustus, has such a low, humble, small birth and beginning. Look with me to Isaiah chapter 1. I want you to flip here if you have your Bible open. Isaiah chapter 1, because an early church father spotted this, and I've never seen it before as many times as I've read Isaiah. But in Isaiah chapter 1, right out of the gate, before he goes on to talk about wonderful counselor, mighty God, before he then goes on to talk about those great and powerful Lent passages of whom, uh, the one from whom men hid their faces, in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 3, I'll read from the NASB. An ox knows its owner, and a donkey its master's manger, but Israel does not know, and my people do not understand. Isaiah nods to Jesus so many centuries before. Maybe even the animals knew better what was before them than the people who attended to him on that evening. Christian, look upon your Jesus wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger, his humanity and his humility. How low we must bend the knee to get lower than a savior born in a manger. To wonder at such love and kindness to see a savior who is so gentle and lowly. Pause over these things. Treasure them in your heart, ponder them in your mind, praise them with your hands today and tomorrow and the next day and the next day. How lovely, beautiful, awesome is this place to look upon this Savior. I can't close better than this quote from an early church father, Ambrose, as he reflected on this scene in the manger. He was a baby, a child, so that you may become a complete, mature person. He was wrapped in swaddling clothes so that you might be freed from the bonds and shroud of death. He was in a manger so that you might be on an altar. He came to earth so that you might be among the stars. He had no place in the inn so that you might have a mansion in heaven. He being rich, became poor for your sakes so that through his poverty, you church, you believer, you who would come and bend the knee to Jesus so that you might have infinite wealth. Let's pray together. Jesus, what blessing, what glory, what humanity, what divinity, what humble esteem that you have come to earth to redeem and save your people. Let us marvel today. 
Let us be caught up today and tomorrow. Let us pause in the midst of so much busyness to thank you and rejoice in you and praise you for so great a salvation. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.